brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty, and today I'm going to be talking to a woman whose decision to learn to cook when she first got married led to her setting up a restaurant in Covent Garden and a wonderful book, Amu, which has just been published. She is, of course, Asma Khan of Darjeeling Express. And I've come to the restaurant to talk about her book and her passion for food. Um, thank you so much for letting me in your restaurant, Asma. I love I love the decor in here. I just love even the tables. It all just feels kind of like very elegant, but also very welcoming and um, a very warm place to be. And I also loved the book. I've been cooking at the weekend with my daughter some recipes from the book. And it's such a treasure trove of memories and recipes interwoven together. And overall, I feel like it's a real testament to your bond with your mother. And I wonder, do you still learn from her in terms of cooking? Or do you find now that she's learning from you? That's a really interesting question. Yes, I think she is also now learning from me. But I still learn from her. I recently, when I went to see her, it was quite lovely to learn a couple of dishes from her. And I think that she now takes great pride and pleasure in teaching me because she knows now it's no longer this casual conversation in the kitchen while she's cooking. She knows I'm watching and now she just goes a little slower so that I can see each step. But it was also her job as well, wasn't it? She set up her own catering company when you were all younger. And Do you feel like you've been influenced by her in that sense as well as the cooking itself? Yes, and I didn't really fully understand the kind of influence she had on me till the pandemic, actually, till I started writing the book. When I decided that I was going to write the book and I wrote this over the pandemic, not knowing when I would see her, we got hit by COVID with all the closures. Then India got hit really hard and all the borders were closed. And it seemed unending that there would never be a time. There was no vaccine. It was that terrible time, you know, when there was, didn't seem any cure and people were dying and people dying in my families, my school friend, their parents. I realized that I will have to write this book now because I did not, even imagine I could write this book if she wasn't there. In her lifetime, I needed to write this book. And that's when everything just happened. Uh, it helped a lot that everything was shut down. I didn't have a business. I didn't have anything to do. All I did was write. Did you envisage it initially as more of a recipe book or did you always know it would have these brilliant memories interwoven. Strangely enough, I wrote all the prose before the recipes. And then I reread again what I'd written. I wrote it in one go with no breaks. I decided that this is it. There are five chapters, five decades of my life. And this is chapter one, chapter two. I just wrote them. I imagined the photographs that I would put at the beginning or somewhere in that chapter. And then I just wrote and then just the recipes were just things that I immediately related to that moment in my life. It was really strange because I hadn't really thought how I was structuring this book because I've never seen a book written like this. It's usually a memoir 
or recipes. And I could not separate the memories and the recipes because they're so deeply entwined. And actually, for so many of us, food is entwined with stories and memories. It's just that we don't recognize that. But if you step back, surrounded by the silence which I was because of lockdown, then it all comes together. You ate these meals at moments in your life. You had these conversations. Sometimes you had these conversations with people who are no longer there. Somewhere in your soul, there is that link of that person. Like Ma, my nanny who raised me. That link of Ma and me. I've shared something very personal, the dish that she made for me. And the first time I saw the proofs, I wept so much when I saw that photograph. It had been digitally cleaned. It's just a slightly out of focus photograph the day before my wedding. And I think I couldn't have done this if Ammu wasn't there. I couldn't have written this book because just seeing that picture of Ma and me broke me completely. So I'm so relieved and so grateful for the kind of support that you know the publishers gave me. They understood this is so personal. Everyone touched everything I wrote with such a light touch. There was hardly any interference. Just support, just love, just go for it, go for it. We stand by you. I think it's been a privilege to have written this book with the kind of support I had with the publishers. They didn't tweak it. They didn't try and make it to fit into an image of what they thought would sell, or it's a good book, or this is the kind of book that you know we think works for you. None of that. And I know that this is a huge privilege and in some ways a responsibility to have written something that was meaningful, but also very commercial. That's something everybody would want to buy. And I managed to do all of that feeling completely liberated to tell my story, to write my recipes. That's so brilliant. That's why it is an unusual book. It isn't like a normal recipe book and it isn't like a normal memoir, but it feels like you're talking to the reader. I made two of the recipes at the weekend with my daughter, who's seven, and we don't cook together very much and it's often quite stressful. But the actual recipes and reading the reason they were there made me cook in a different way. It felt very calm. And I know you talk about being patient and I think your mother says that as well, that you have to kind of let, the food breathe almost you know like not to rush and we cooked the chapati and um, we cooked the alu gobi mata and she wouldn't eat that because she doesn't eat anything except for chicken nuggets but she loved the chapati and she rolled it out and she measured each one to 15 centimeters with a ruler and I was saying don't worry too much if it's not but she read the recipe herself she said no it says 15 centimeters and um it was such, honestly, the best cooking experience we've ever had. And I let her follow the recipe. And it was partly because you talk about trusting the reader with the recipe. And I really loved that bit. I think it's near the beginning you say, this is your recipe now. And that made me feel I can do it. I don't cook Indian food very much, but we're going to have chapati. Now we've got the flour and we're going to cook it again from your recipe. And it was just such a wonderful experience. When we cook, we splash food everywhere. So we're really messy. And I quite like the, the recipe book pages to become splashed with tomato, flour. I think it's part <laughs> of the experience. Are you tidy in the kitchen? Are you like that too? Or do you like things to kind of remain in a pristine condition? No, no, I just let... If there's a mess, Indian food, I mean, the thing is that whatever is white 
you've got to have turmeric ending up in it within seconds. So I've just given up. <laughs> it's an immersive experience in some ways when you cook. It's the sound of the mustard seeds popping, the dried red chilies, that smokiness. So it's the sound, it's the aroma, it's the senses that are there. So a little bit of smashing of food here and there, that's just part of it. You shouldn't be worrying about wiping up, should you? You should kind of just be enjoying the moment. And I think that this moment with your daughter and you, I love this because she will remember this just the way I remember my mother and cooking with her. She will remember this for sure. You are now gifting your child food memories from a book about memories. And this is a lovely story. And I'm so happy you cooked with her. We're going to do more from the book. And it's because of the way it's done. It's just so beautiful. And the photos as well. There are some biscuits in there. And you talk about them reminding you of the Yardley soap. They like maybe have lavender on them. Yes. We're going to make those next. They look delicious. And you talk in that bit about how the photographer hardly did anything, just that you felt she was very respectful towards the food and just let the food be. And that's so great that you felt that, that there wasn't someone coming in just saying, I'm going to arrange it in this way. This is how the lighting should be. Was that a process you were involved in the photography? Did you feel that you could have input? It's really incredible that someone so skilled, a professional photographer at the height of her game, felt happy to just let it be. And we would begin the day by us talking about the recipe and I would tell them stories and they would all try on the bangles and wear the jewelry. It was a really magical time because of COVID, we were all heavily masked. And then we would all take our food to the park so that we could take our masks off and eat safely uh, with each other. There was a really kind of intense bonding at that time. People talked about their mothers and, you know, those who had children and those who were trying to have children. And all this came out. It was a time of huge emotion. You see that in the photographs because she knew the entire story of what that dish was. Of course, you know, because of time and space, the entire stories of the dishes are not there in each uh, introduction. But I talked about it as we made it. And it was almost like they felt transported back to my house. I felt that they really cared so much to make it something that my mother would have been proud of as we were photographing. And, you know, they would just let me come and stand here and do this and do that. So you have these pictures where it's my hands and I'm standing there and I'm doing things. So it was so organic. I think you see that in the, in the book, that it, it doesn't look staged and doesn't look micromanaged. Absolutely. It feels very vibrant. Like They're just part of the book. Your eye isn't drawn to the picture over the text. Everything is just part of a whole and it, it all just feels very alive and vibrant. Let's move on to your first object. We always ask writers to bring in a few things to talk to us about. And the first one I'd love to talk to you about is something that changed you. Yes, a pair of jeans. When I moved to Cambridge, I didn't have any Western clothes. I moved in January. I had these beautiful silken pajamas under my kurta, like I'm wearing one now. And they got stuck in the chains in the cycle. It was so difficult, also so cold, because when the wind would cut through, 
my legs were freezing and I couldn't and I still can't wear tights. You you're going to grow up wearing tights or you can't wear them. This the idea of just being you feel trapped. I feel like you know I've been chained to something. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable. You grew up in a hot country, yeah. something so close to your skin, you can't take. So I was so so cold. And one day I told again another beautiful silken pajama which is very flappy they're flappy trousers go into went into my cycle chain got all the grease in it and the chain broke i had to pull my cycle up to see this friend and i told her that you know this is my situation she says why don't you wear jeans and i said how can i wear jeans under the kurta because i don't want to wear a top it's just too uncomfortable and too alien for me she says so what just wear a pair of jeans you'll be warm and it won't get into your cycle chain and you'll be able to to go everywhere and i'm still wearing jeans under my kurta from that day onwards it really changed my life something so small because i wouldn't wear western clothes because i was uncomfortable in them but jeans man after i started wearing them Oh, it's the best thing in the whole universe. And when you find a good pair of jeans, you don't even notice they're on, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just liberated me. I could cycle, I could walk, I could get wet in the rain and not, you know, have a complete crisis. It really, really made a huge difference. You say you learned to cook when you went back to India following the move to the UK. And at that point you couldn't even boil an egg, which now seems unbelievable considering where you've got to, but you couldn't even boil an egg and I know that recipes that were taught to you they said well she can't cook so we're going to teach her this recipe because it's not too skilled you know and then you went back to India and that was really when you learned to cook but I know that you do have memories of cooking as a young child I love that bit about your mother allowed you to be in the kitchen when you were a child but you had to hold on to her sari so that she knew was that to keep you away from the hot yes uh, area so you weren't in danger that's just so such a lovely picture and also i think if there was a splash it would hit her first before it hit me i th- i think about this a lot about how we make it look effortless you have a child i have child but also if it's not your own child so it's your pet or is it someone else you care for where you put your body physically to protect and i never worked it out i just thought that you know this was my kind of passport to being in the kitchen i had to hold on to the back of a sari that she was there in front of me between me and the flame me and the hot oil it's just so sweet and not to make it dramatic and not to kind of as we say not to make you feel uh, that you're obliged to her in any way that she just did it she didn't tell me that this was her way to protect me This was just a rule I had to follow the rule I had to hold on to the edge of a sari and when I used to cook in Cambridge much later whenever I touched fabric I used to immediately remember myself back in the kitchen the texture of fabric between my hands is my memories of being in a kitchen did you realize that when you were writing the book did you realize that was the reason she'd done that i realized when i was writing the book i hadn't worked it out till then I knew that fabric was something I related to cooking and the memories of holding on to her woven silk cotton saris. It's quite surprising when I was reading the book and all the kind of drafts I was thinking, you know, how is it that I missed all this? I want to tell anyone who's listening to this 
you should write. Your whole being is full of memories. You need to put it down on paper. And that's when a lot of it starts making sense. The written word is very powerful because we all have these thoughts, but when you write them down, there's a clarity that comes from writing. And I mean, for potential writers, start writing. That's what I say. I think it does you good as well, doesn't it? To write it down. You realize things and it can help. I think it can help healing process. Absolutely. I think I have understood myself. I have also understood my children. And when I was writing the last chapter, I was understanding that they will be so different from me. I should not imagine that they will marry like me or follow all the norms and rules that I have been raised by. I let go, but I know that they are carrying in them the DNA, which is my food, my mother's food, Ammo's food. This is going to be the only thing that they will take forward. They may take away other things from me, but I know that long after I'm gone, they will recreate those dishes, those memories. Your daughter with a ruler measuring the chapatis, she will tell her children about it. This is the thing that I, I feel this book has been so incredible. In my worst time, in the most debilitating, debt-ridden time of great darkness, which was as a restauranter, I lost everything. I had 35 women who were dependent on me emotionally. You know, the furlough was there, but emotionally. This book was the anchor that kept me together and stopped me from falling apart. What are your mother's memories of cooking with her mother? Are they similar to your memories of cooking with her as a child? No, she was not her mother's favourite. My grandmother was complicated and my mother was not someone she loved that much. But my mother cooked with her grandmother and her aunt, who I mentioned in the book, uh, Shoka Chachi. Yes. So she was her grandmother's favourite. And my grandmother cooked, but she cooked without great love and passion. I think the fact that her whole life was dominated by her grief that she didn't have a son. My mother is one of five daughters. She's the middle daughter. And I think my grandmother never really loved life that much. It's a very hard thing to say. I possibly should not say it because she's no longer here. But I think that took over her whole life, not having had a son. She felt like a failure probably. So even when she cooked, she cooked beautiful food. But there was a kind of something always missing. You know, I used to tell my mother, even if she boiled water, it tasted magical. There's something about Ammo and her touch and just the love with which she gave you even the simplest of things. There was something so beautiful in her food, but no, my mother didn't have the memories with her mother. She did definitely had with her grandmother because she cooks all the family food and she's also with from her aunt, who she learned to cook from and knit. She learned to knit and she learned to cook from the same aunt. So she got that from a different female figure yes. in her life, basically. I like how you say, I think towards the end, that whoever your Amu is, people whose maybe mothers aren't here anymore or don't know their mothers, or people who don't have children, 
you still have those figures in your life, don't you? It's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be your mother. It can be just as long as that love is there, then that's what influences, I think, that's what I take from it, the bond between you. Yes, and I say that because sometimes people are not close to their mothers. My mother was not close to her own mother, yet was very Mm. maternal and had been nurtured and nourished by other females. And we all have someone in our lives, or we did have someone in our lives who played that role. It can be your best friend, it can be a teacher in school, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the same person. At that point, there's always someone in your life who is your anchor. That is the Ammu in your life, the one you go and have these meals with, where you can spend an entire day just talking to that person, cooking, eating together. I, I wanted this book to be more than just a mother-daughter, even though that is the core of the book is about a mother and daughter. It's a relationship of forgiveness. It's a relationship where there's unspoken love and the communication is food. And I think this is the truth for a lot of people where it is this kind of unspoken love and the desire to heal and nurture and nourish someone, either you are the person who's lucky to get it or you're doing this for someone else. Yes. Well, let's move on to your second object. This is a book that I love too. Um, It's your favourite childhood book. It's Alice in Wonderland. And I really shouldn't say it's my favourite childhood book. It's my father's favourite book. He knew it by heart. He would sit and recite the book to us. It was just academic that he was holding the book. He knew the passages by heart. He would change his voice. So when he was talking about different characters, he always had different tones. And it was as if he got this book to life. And I don't need to read the book anymore. I smile because I just hear his voice reading out sections from the book. And growing up in India where already Alice in Wonderland is so magical, and everything is happening that is so out of any kind of real experience. But in India, you felt like you had gone into Wonderland and this was just incredible and people painting flowers and you know falling into things and changing shape. It kind of made you feel that everything is going to be okay. That irrespective of what happens, you know, you're going to go through that door and something's going to happen to you and it all is fine. And that people around you, they don't seem quite normal. It's fine because no harm happens. I love the book. I love the book and I've read it a lot to my kids. And uh, I tell them that you've got to get your grandfather to read this book for you next time. When you talk about the monsoons in the book and you talk about the egg man cycling through the water, delivering an egg when the electricity has been lost and there's the rations imposed because of the monsoons and he has one egg or half an egg to deliver to each house. I could just really imagine that the way you wrote it and you say that by the lantern light, your father told stories at the dinner table and that felt like it must have been different from a normal mealtime because you have this lantern light and there's the monsoons. I can't imagine having grown up in this country what a monsoon is like because it must be so different from the rain that you got when you got to Cambridge. It's just a completely different thing, isn't it? 
when he told those stories, was that stories like Alice in Wonderland? Were they stories that he'd told before or did he used to make them up? He made them up. He would make up a lot of stories. He had an incredible memory. So he would often recite poetry, but also, you know, read Shakespeare's sonnets to us, Tennyson, and then move into Omar Khayyam, you know, the Persian poet from the Middle East, and talk about really intense philosophical conversations. Sufi poetry, he used to break into song and the rhythmic clapping of Qawwali, which is part of our you know, Sufi heritage. And uh, yes, he used to read all kinds of things, you know, Arabian Nights. And because it was dark, you can't really read. So when I say when he reads, he actually recited it. He had a phenomenal memory. And I would notice that he would start reading during the day so that he could recite at night. He practiced. He was ready. And we were ready too, because it was story time. And I, I feel this was my real education. My education was the monsoons, the lantern, the darkness, the shadows around us, and my father's voice as he tell us the stories, what were in the book. And I think that I now realize that incredibly, more than cooking, I am now loving to speak and write. I am becoming my father. Even though this book is dedicated to my mother, my father plays a starring role. He is the, the voice of my childhood. My mother never communicated that much. She fed me, she watched me eat. She used to occasionally hold my hand. But Abba, my father, would tell us that he loved us and tell us stories and write poetry and read poetry out to us. It was incredible. I'm picturing these mealtimes now with you as a child. Did your mother used to sit down and eat with you? or were, I feel sometimes when I serve food, I'm constantly getting up, getting tomato ketchup. My son spills his water. I had to. Did you all used to sit down together in a formal way or was your mother always kind of getting more food and fetching things. My mother was always not on her chair. She was moving around and helping serve food, going and checking on other things, checking on the kitchen, what was happening, where something hadn't come, something wasn't ready. She was always, always in and out. I've never seen her sitting down and eating. What I remember, she should sit down and watch us eat. And I don't know, understand why we never thought this was odd, that she wasn't eating. Because she was constantly getting up. She used to watch us eat. And I don't know when she ate. But you felt her presence completely because she was always behind you, giving you things, uh, checking on you. So she was very much there all over the place, but not eating with us, which is part of a tradition in South Asia, I suppose, but Amu was also always a server. She still just likes serving people. She liked taking care of people. She always put herself last. I love that the women you employ, how that came about, that they were people you knew as friends and they weren't professional cooks when you started your business and when you were doing the pop-up and you only employ women now, and the charity work, I know you've set up a charity. Is it important for you, as you become ever more successful, to carry on thinking of others? It seems like your ethics are completely entwined with your passions. Would you say that's right? I think ethics should be entwined with your passion and your profession for everyone. There is no excuse 
for putting commercial interest, your career, your promotion above your ethics. But unfortunately, too many people do that. I can give you an example, which is when all this evidence has come out of bullying in kitchens, there's proven cases where it has been established that there was sexual harassment or physical violence against people. I have not ever seen a single prominent female chef in this country speak up. Anyone who's seen as a prominent female chef, they've put their career, their loyalty to the men who helped them climb up to where they are above their ethics. And I feel this is something that makes me very uncomfortable. And I couldn't live with myself if I stayed silent. History is full of evidence from the time that a woman would say, I'm not getting off this bus. She lived to see the end of segregation in America. The women who threw themselves before horses in suffragette, they didn't see the likes of you and me both, but they knew this would happen one day. You have to be brave. I'm not saying go jump before a horse, but ethics and morality are very, very important. And I hold my head up high. I can look at myself in the eye because I know that I am on the right side of history. You do see people start out with the best intentions sometimes, don't you? And as they get more money and more success, it's easy for them to forget kind of why they started and why they initially wanted to make a change. So I I really admire you because I think it is rare. Let's move to your next object. This is something you inherited. Inside this, get it off. You can see the silver is different because outside it's all blackened, but the inside is so pure. And it's a silver bowl with a lid, if anyone's listening. Very beautiful silver bowl with a lid on a silver dish. And yes, the outside looks completely different from the inside. Yes, inside is like brand new. It used to, when it was on my grandmother's table, it was always full of coconut oil. And just before she went for a shower, she would open this, dip her fingers in, and rub it in her scalp as a way of nourishing her hair before she put the shampoo, because she would always say, shampoos are full of chemicals. They strip everything from your scalp, the natural oils. So she would use this. And when my grandmother died, my mother was asked if she wanted anything. And she picked this. And she left everything else for her sisters. And I was surprised when I heard that she took this because I thought there must be something in Ammu. She must have visualized her mother would constantly touch. And maybe Ammu felt she never touched her and she never held her. And this was something that she was in contact with every day. And I asked Ammu, I said, Ammu, I heard you took the bowl. And she said, yes, I took it to give it to you. And she gave it to me. So she took it from her mother's dressing table when she died and kept it, never took it out. Then the first time she saw me after my grandmother died, she gave it to me and said, you know, I want you to have it because I think you get it. I never fully asked her what she meant. I think I know what she meant. To be not loved, not celebrated, my mother scarred with all of this rose above it to be someone incredible with a deep sense of justice. And she gave it to me. 
I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional, but it is quite uh, hard to understand that she never talks about what her childhood was like, ever. I have photographs, and that's what I have in the book, but she's never talked about her dreams, her aspirations, being loved, not loved. She never talks about it, ever. But she gave this to me. It's almost like she was giving you what she's given you with the food as well. Yes. She's giving you something that's living. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is that because, you know, even though it's just like a silver bowl on a silver plate, it's very pretty, but that you know that my grandmother touched it every day, took the lid off, put her fingers in and put the oil in her hair. There's something very personal and it's something that my mother does every time I go back. The first thing my mother will do the day I come is to oil my hair. And she'll make me sit down on the floor. She'll sit on a chair and she will gently oil my hair and keep telling me, you don't look after yourself. Your hair is so dry. And the day before I leave as well, she will oil my hair and tell her, please, Asma, oil your hair. She tells me that, you know, I should continue to oil my hair. It's an Indian obsession with oiling the hair. Anyone who's Indian will understand this. There's something that mothers do. And they don't tell you that they love you, but they will sit and oil your hair each strand with the patience and time, which is so hard to describe. You feel that all that emotion in that gesture. And I was very confused for a while that, is this what I want to talk about? Because it's very raw. It's something I've inherited, which I've never talked about. I didn't even mention it in the book. But I thought I should be brave. And as it's not somewhere where even if I did cry, uh, no one will see it. Uh, this is why I, I, I got it to show it to you. I'm so pleased that you shared it with us. It's so special. And I think when someone's passed away, an object that you take is infused with meaning. Yes. And it could be an old fork or a cracked mirror. It's what it means, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think food has a similar power to objects to help with grieving? Absolutely. And just before the pandemic, I'd gone to a refugee camp where I was cooking with Syrian refugee women. It took a while before I realized that the person who was the main cook was cooking a dish that she had not cooked for a long time because it was her son's favorite. She lost her entire family in the morning in Damascus. And she thought that as I was her guest, she would make that dish. She wept throughout while making that dish. But when the dish was ready, she served it and then she danced and she sang. All the kind of, the rolling of the tongue, this Arab thing where they call from the tongue, which is bringing good luck. She made those sounds as I ate so that I would enjoy this dish. And I know how much she wept when she made it. Food is the greatest balm for broken souls. I'm convinced of that. Do you think it makes a difference what we food off? I have some plates that my father passed away 10 years ago and they used to belong to him. And when I eat food from them, I feel different, like it's dad's plates. I just wondered what kind of crockery you have at home and whether you think that's important too. Yes, I have. My mother gave me the plates that were given to her when she got married, the wedding plates, which she never used for years because they were Wedgwood that come from England. 
and they were part of her trousseau. She gave it to me. She said, I want you to have it. I want you to eat from it. I want to know that someone has used it. And if you break it, don't feel bad because that's what it was meant for. It's meant to eventually break. And yes, I do use it. I, I use it. She's ended up giving me a lot of her very personal things, which I'm very aware of. It becomes more and more poignant. Like the earring I'm wearing is her childhood earring. And one piece, as you can see, is different because it broke. And this is from her anklet. She took it out and sat there and had the jeweler attach those two bits to it. So, and then she gave it to me this time. So every time I go, she's repairing, fixing things that are precious to her and giving it to me. It's, uh, it's tough. It's tough leaving her every time. I understand she always fears that distances are terrible things. I always tell her that, you know, I'm going to come back and see you very soon. I won't let her say what I can see in her eyes every time I go. How often do you manage to see her? Well, it's been very hard. I, I normally would see her at least four times a year before. Now, traveling is very difficult. Yeah. I managed to go and see her twice in a row, very, very quickly. The first time I went, I was only able to take the cover of the book. It had just been kind of, I just saw the cover. And then, incredibly, miraculously, I managed to get one copy. And I absolutely love Sam for doing this. Sam at Ibury got me that the day before I left for India. And I gave it to my mother on her birthday. It oh. was incredibly exciting. And she was so happy. But I was hoping to see her again. But business is complicated. Uh, so I'm not going as planned. I'm hoping and praying that she will come in May. Uh, finally, back to England after all these years. I'm excited. Has she been to your restaurant before? Not this one. No. Because I moved during the pandemic. So she hasn't been since 2017. So she's been to the yeah. other one in Soho. But she hasn't been to this one. She hasn't been to the one that I'm in. No, no, oh, no, no, she hasn't been to I it. I can't wait for that. And you can see, and she'll on. see all her pictures on the walls. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, let's move on to something you use every day. This, is this something that you were given or something you bought No, yourself? this is a, it looks like a lipstick. It's what I use in my eyes. It is uh, coal that you put inside. It's a very Indian thing. That's the only thing that I would always do as a child. I would put coal inside my eyes. But I use this, of course, this is, you know, organic and has been made by someone who's, who's very good. But for my entire childhood, the coal used to be made by my mother and my ayah, my nanny, ma. They used to make it on a silver plate. They used to light a candle and they used to collect the charcoal, then mix it with ghee in a little bowl with a silver stick. And I would use a silver stick inside my eyes. And when I got married, my ma had made quite a big quantity for me in a big box. And eventually it finished, but ma had died by then. And Ammu told me, I'm going to make it for you again. And I said, no, you can buy it. I think she was disappointed that I didn't let her make it. I just felt that it was always ma and Ammu who did it together. So I told Ammu that ma is no longer there. Let me move on. And I use it, but I often think of them whenever I use this in my eyes. So if you see any pictures of me anywhere, I may not be wearing lipstick, my hair might look awful, I may look like the cat has dragged me through some bush, but you will always see I've got kajal, which is coal, inside my 
inner Lydia. And this I use every day because my, my mother would always tell me, it makes your eyes look nice. And if she saw me without it, she said, go put on coal, put on your kajal. So I used to always do it so that my mother would be happy. She didn't ask me to do any makeup. She, she knew I was not interested. I was like too wild a kid when I was small. But I always did that to please her. Can you prescribe food to people? In, so, for example, if a friend came and her dog had died, could you look at her and say, I know what I'm going to make for you? And you might make a different thing for someone's birthday or something like that. Always, always. I think that deep in all of us who have grown up in families where food is the core of every occasion, birth, death, marriages, also conflict and fights. I mean, my mother's chicken biryani, she only made when I got into trouble in school, my brother lost his match. She didn't say anything to us that, oh, I'm very bad, or, or that your principal called me and said that your maths grades are really bad, or often I got punished for being naughty in school. And they asked to take a letter back home saying that I'd been a really bad child. My mother didn't say anything to me. She knew I was feeling really bad. She would make the chicken biryani. So I grew up always where food was a signal to you about certain things. So yes, if someone came and told me that their, their pet had passed away, I would immediately make something else from what I'd planned. I would go in for something very, very warming with turmeric, which is, you know, really antibacterial healing with very kind of mild spicing. You don't want to have something that's got a lot of chilies in it. You want it to be smooth. You want it to be comforting, you know, like a sada pulao, which is in the book. It's a great pulao because it has kind of something sweet and it has raisins in it. You can also put cranberries in it and cashew nuts. So all of the things I would have given it to someone for making them feel happier and better. That's just my instinct. So yes, always would cook for different occasions. I would, I would definitely have a recipe. And in that book, there are lots of recipes for every kind of occasion. And when you were describing that dish, it made me think it's like you're giving your friend a hug by making that. You're making it milder. You're putting in the sweetness. It's like you're just throwing your arms around her and staying there. Whereas other dishes in your book, it feels like they're almost dancing. It's like <laughs> more fiery and yeah. kind of more vibrant, more chilly. It's like, this isn't a time to, to sit around. We need to eat. We need to really enjoy this. We're all together. It's like each dish is saying a slightly different thing. Always. And I think that there are also dishes that you associate with certain things. And when that something situation happens in your life, you recreate those dishes. So it's a kind of legacy. So I know the dishes that Ammu made. And I also end up making those same dishes in that occasion because I immediately related to that. Like monsoons. I have those monsoon dishes of, you know, pakoras and the egg dishes and even though the rain in this country is so cold, and it's not like monsoon, if it rains a lot, I feel the urge to make those things, even if it is not monsoon-like. But when the rain is relentless, and the sound, the sound of the rain, even though it's relentless, doesn't sound the same as monsoons in India. There it's dancing, it's twinkling. Here it's harsher, maybe because it's cold and it's just heavier the drops. But still, I feel that I need to cook the monsoon food. There is this desire to kind of recreate moments when something similar happens. Well, let's move on to your final object. And this is something that inspires you. Yes, it's a fragrance which in our culture is called different things. 
it's jasmine oil. Jasmine is something that I miss a lot. And it is a fragrance I've always associated with my grand aunts and learning from them and being with them because they never used perfume. They used the oils of flowers, fresh. These oils were distilled for them and they would put at the back of their ears. And wherever the fragrance comes, I feel that I'm very blessed. I feel stronger. I feel ready to face the world because I realize the legacy that I have. I am the custodian of family recipes. I am the custodian of family memories. I've written a lot about this. I feel that fragrance always reminds me of being close to elders in my family because the women would have this perfume. And when you went to hug them, that fragrance was just so beautiful. And then the touch, they would always hold you. So that oil has this magical something. It just, it's very emotional. It hits you really hard. And it reminds me of who I am and that I have a responsibility because the women who wore these perfume are no longer there. My mother is the last of these people who I remember wearing it. My mother still wears jasmine oil. She does use perfume as well at times, but I love it when she uses jasmine. And it kind of makes me feel that every day I live one day less, that I need to write more. I need to tell these memories down for others but also I need to write these stories because all these women have left without writing anything and their memories will be gone. And who will remember the jasmine oil if I don't write about it? So yeah, I, I feel very inspired. A strange thing to talk about being inspired by a perfume, but it's the person who was wearing it. That is actually the, the main thing. I'm excited because I think there's a lot I want to write. I really understand that. I think everyone will understand the power of scent is incredible. And when you associate it with that, there's a real sense in the book of the responsibility and the care you take that really comes across. And I think that's why you feel so enveloped when you're reading it. I love it when you talk about singing in the kitchen with the women you work with now. What songs do you sing? We sing Songs of Rajesh Khanna, who's my mother's favorite actor. I have no idea how these women kind of sense this is the songs I heard on the radio. Or maybe they heard it on the radio as well. It's the music of the 70s and 80s, our childhood, Bollywood songs. Now, of course, called vintage, retro music. I don't know when we became vintage and retro. I don't feel it. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's often referred to as vintage Bollywood and retro Bollywood. And I think, no, this is music of my times. I'm not retro. I'm not retro as yet. <laughs> so it's really that beautiful time where the person who sang the songs was also from Calcutta. So we sing Hindi songs. We sing Hindi film songs from the 70s and 80s. Oh, well, I can't wait to come back when I can eat here and hear you sing and try. Yeah, and because unfortunately this time I haven't been able to feed you, but you've got to come back and eat next time. Let me feed you. Believe me, I'm not going to eat for two days beforehand. So that and bring I your daughter. Just try it. I, I just absolutely would love to. Tell her to bring her ruler so she can check whether my chapatis are the right size. <laughs> She would love that so much. <laughs> um, my last question is, is there one 
dish that you make that reminds you most of Amu? I can't name just one dish. It's a bit hard because she is so entwined in everything I do and everything I cook. So unfortunately, I can't pick. But there are always dishes that come to mind when certain some things happen in my life. I get some good news. I, I make the dessert. You know, I make the laddu, the coconut laddu, or I make chapati. But it's hard. I, I cannot, unfortunately, name one dish because she is in my being, in my soul. And I often think that her heartbeat was the first thing I heard. So she is everything. And I am created by her. And from the womb, I come. And that was my first home, Ammu, was my first home. That's where I got life. So I feel this thing that literally everything I cook and everything I do, she is part of it. Well, then that's the answer. All of the dishes, it's all equal. Yes. She's just infused in everything. Yes, she is. Well, thank you so much. I've really loved talking to you. And I have to say also, I'm not normally very confident with with cooking generally. I'm getting better, but I found your recipes, the easiest and most kind of lovingly written recipes. I'm going to cook more from your book. I really mean that. And the experience of cooking with Betty was the calmest cooking experience we've ever had. And that was thanks to the book. So I'm sure everyone's going to have that experience with it. You must take the time to really read it. It's not a book to be opened, page 100, I'm going to cook this, I've got 20 minutes. It's a book that really deserves to be treasured. And it's so beautiful. And it feels like you've really opened yourself up. And it's just so wonderful and inspiring. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to the listeners for listening wherever you are. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. We've got some fantastic guests coming up in the next few weeks, including Benjamin Zephaniah. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or asthma's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time.